Hello, it's Paul Scott here again with part two of my weekly weekend podcast. It's Saturday, 10th of June, 2023. I've, hello again to everyone. Sorry if you didn't get to the end of the last podcast. It was exceptionally long. Uh, I, well, I wanted to include a lot of interesting reader comments as well, but it ended up doubling the length of the podcast, so I might have to <laughs> might have to um, rethink the uh, the duration of them. But anyway, there we go. So the this part two, as always, is usually the shorter section where I just ponder some uh, macro market overview type things that I've spotted during the week and noted down on my notepad. So here goes. Yeah, looking at the six-month figures for the indices, um, FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250, uh, year-to-date they're both roughly flat or slightly up actually, but it feels a lot worse than that, because remember we had a strong rally in January and February, which they've given up all of that now. Um, It's the small caps that are really taking the battering, isn't it? Again, um, the AIM 100 index peaked at about, what's that, 4,300, maybe 4,350 in February. It's now down to 3,787. So we've had a, and there's really not any sign of the AIM indices, um, the AIM 100 or the AIM all share index, uh, are really at, at or around their, their year-to-date lows. So they're down about 5% year-to-date, but as I say, it feels worse because they had a good, strong rally of about 5 or 6 7% or something in the first two months. So we're off 12 or 13% maybe from the high. I'm just, these are just rough figures as I'm reading the charts. So, yeah, very difficult in small caps still, I'm afraid, unfortunately. And same picture as I've mentioned in the last few weeks, you know, things that do rally strongly, people then uh, profit take. So uh, having said that, I have seen some good, better quality uh, small cap and AIM shares look like they're now finding a base level. So I wonder if we are in um, in that that period near the end of a bear market, possibly where shares just begin to plateau, where there are just no more sellers. And, um, you know, that sets the ground, doesn't it, for the next bull run? Although the macro news, as I've said uh, in last week and the week before, I think, is getting significantly worse, I think. Um, so, But markets bottom out and start rising, of course, well before economies recover. So I think all these factors we need to just bear in mind and process in your own way and decide what to do. I can completely see why some people just want to sit things out in cash. I think that's probably quite a good strategy. Uh, Personally, I always stay full invested uh, because a lot of the things I'm in are not actually that related to the economy as a whole. So um, I remain fully invested. Made some slight tweaks to my portfolio this week. Uh, I ditched my tiny, tiny little entry-level position in Hostmore uh, because I didn't like the update. It showed a deterioration in trading, which they tried to cover up by using um, averages which masked the, de- the recent deterioration, so I don't like that. And I knew it was high risk anyway, but I was I was basing... I just dipped my term with a small purchase. I think I sold them at about a 20% loss, so it doesn't matter. I'm happy to just chuck it out if the uh, position um, doesn't remain as bullish as I thought it was. So I've bought... I've recycled that money, and as I say, very tiny amount of money, into a new position in VP Group, the equipment hire business. Just want to dip my toe in there. I think it's cheap. Uh, we'll see where we go. Other than that, I haven't made any changes to my portfolio. I, I, these days, I'm only actually but trading about maybe once a month or some, some, once every fortnight maximum. So there's not really going on. It's a small 
portfolio with with buy and hold positions in it. So, and it's doing very well this year. I'm very very strongly up, but that's mainly thanks to a takeover bid for Seraphine. But the stuff I bought with Seraphine is also all up at least twenty percent. So, not bad at all. I'm having a good year in percentage terms, just not uh, in overall money terms. Um, because last year was such a disaster with those geared accounts. I've told you many, many times before. Anyway, moving on. Food prices. I've been looking, reading various um, uh, reports about this. I might have mentioned it before, but the London School of Economics produced a report that said that Brexit has very considerably added to food prices in the UK. But I immediately then, uh, on doing some Googling, found um, studies and data that shows the opposite. Um, <laughs> yeah, there was something in the BBC, I think, yesterday saying that food generally is cheaper in Britain than it is across uh, Europe. And I certainly found that when I went to Malta recently. I might have mentioned it. I appreciate that everything comes into Malta by sea. Most most things are imported. But it was hideously expensive in Lidl, way, way above what I pay in the UK in Asda and, and, uh, and Lidl were the main places I shop. When I'm in London, I have to go to Sainsbury's and Tesco convenience stores, which is astronomical, some of the prices there. But if you shop around, you know, you can buy the buy the bargains. Um, and I noticed that I went to Asda last night and I, I could see quite a few things actually had started to drop in price. Although, as with the butter, they reduced the pack size by a fifth, haven't they? Uh, so that's why it looked more reasonable. But that's fine. I'll just use a fifth less of it. You know, what's the problem? So I think with food prices, we've seen the worst of it. And certainly petrol has now dropped a lot, hasn't it? Or, and diesel. I've noticed it was around £2 a litre at the worst point of the of the energy crisis. Now down to about £1.40. So that's a seriously um, big boost to household budgets there from the worst point in this energy crisis. Same thing is happening with energy bills. Apparently oh, they're dropping by about 400 or £420 per household from 1st of July. So I think there is light at the end of the tunnel about inflation, whilst accepting that the core inflation numbers that we talked about last week have caused a nasty spike in um, interest rate and in bond yields and so on. So there's a contra-argument that underlying core inflation is proving stickier than we thought. So, yeah, I don't know. A mixed bag, isn't it? Who knows what happens? I mean, all we can say is that inflation is definitely going to come down from 8.7%, but we don't really know how far and how fast, do we? And what's going to make the central banks actually start reducing interest rates? That's what's unclear to me. There was one press report saying that one of the big uh, research houses was saying that interest rates may stay high until 2025. Well, that's going to kill things, isn't it? I just, I wish I, you know, they shouldn't have this single mandate just to control inflation. Because we, I know it's important to control inflation, don't, don't get me wrong, but we don't have an overheating economy. We've got GDP flatlining. The, 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 the tight labour market is an issue, though, isn't it? So I don't know. There's lots of stuff, stuff to di- digest here. My current view is, is the same as last week. I'm a lot more, um, I'm a lot more worried now that the inflation and the interest rates could uh, remain elevated and I, I you know that that sort of rapid reduction in interest rates that people are hoping for in 2024 I don't know how likely is that I just don't know because it's not clear to me what these central bankers um, you know what they're thinking is and there's no accountability to the decisions being made so I think they're making terrible policy errors and I think they're going to crash the economy actually I think that's looking increasingly likely now. And I think they could avoid that by just stopping any more interest rate increases 
and uh, actually start easing them down a little bit when once inflation has dropped. You know, we don't have to hit this 2% target at all costs if those costs Im- involve trashing the economy, causing large numbers of people to lose their, their homes and their, and their jobs. Uh, to me, this is all wrong. It needs to be... It, we, after this crisis has passed, everybody needs to rethink how things are done, I, I believe. So that's food prices. Moving on to the hospitality sector that I always like to follow. Now, the Propel newsletter is brilliant. They say a third of hospitality companies are now saying they won't survive the next 12 months. A third! That's horrendous, isn't it? Um, Although um, City Pubs put out quite good um, update this week, and an interesting line in their uh, report said that there's clear evidence of an abatement in some cost areas. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Particularly energy costs. I mentioned in the earlier podcast, that is going to be a big... Uh, it was a, a big headwind up until now, but it's now actually a big tailwind. My brother spoke to a local restaurant, just a small local restaurant that he's family with up in Cheshire, and the guy there said his... The proprietor said his energy costs have gone from £800 a month to £3,000 a month, which, you know, would cripple a small business that was barely making any money anyway. So I said to him, uh, my brother, well, just tell him to, you know, start ringing round all the different energy providers because he should be able to get a significant discount now and don't lock into a, lock, a fixed-price deal. Um, you know, go for a uh, just a sp- spot rate because, you know... Obviously, for, to give you the certainty of a, of a fix, they want a big premium for it. Actually, this was discussed in Zotfoam's ZTF uh, a webinar that I listened to yesterday. It's very, very interesting what they were saying about energy prices. And it's, uh, you know, to companies that manage... Actually, you, you don't want to be hedged at the moment. This is the, this is the weird thing. To get the hedging, if you hedged at an expensive rate, at six or... Well, however, month, months ago, you could now be wildly overpaying for electricity and gas. So it just shows, doesn't it? I mean, it's very difficult to know for business people to know what to do, I think. Now, I want to highlight again Megan's quality investing uh, webinar, which was fantastic. This was on Stockopedia this week. Um, she said focusing on, on, on high-quality companies is the best way to protect yourself in a bear market. And that was, you know, with, with statistical evidence to prove that up but it got me thinking you know how crap most British companies really are I mean I've always known that you know small caps only about a third of them I would say are investable but you know we're reporting on 550 or so small and mid caps in the small cap value reports and you just look at most things and you think this is crap why would anyone out of all the options of companies we've got to invest in why on earth would anyone buy into this heap of rubbish uh, which we try to say, but without offending anyone too much, uh, for probably at least half, probably more than half of the companies we look at. So I think bear markets are a good time to actually reassess everything you've got and, and, and just identify much higher quality companies and chuck out the crap, you know, just because it's down 80 or 90%. Although the trouble is, we're all human, aren't we? We all look at it and think, oh, you know, my, I've lost nearly all the money anyway. It could be a multi-bagger if this, this and this happens. And the odd one will be. That's the interesting thing. So, I don't know, you've got to make your own mind up. I find it depressing just looking at shares every day on my portfolio that I think I'm really not comfortable with that. I know it's rubbish. And it's much better to just chuck them out, I think. I'm happy with the stuff I've got. As I say, the only thing I'm worried about in my portfolio currently is Revolution Bars. I think if things go badly wrong for that, you know, there could be another discounted placing coming. Everything else I'm really happy with. So 
one position that worries me a bit uh, isn't isn't too bad. Actually, I'll just quickly run through uh, all, the, all the companies in my portfolio because it's a very concentrated portfolio now. These are all owned outright, no gearing. I've completely changed my approach. So my biggest position by far is BOTB, which I bought in January. That's up 27%. The Supercars Competitions Company, I think that's very, very good. Uh, XPF is my second largest holding, XP Factory. I'm up 15% on that. Again, bought in January. Uh, I think that's going to be very good, but um, it, it, you know the progress hasn't come through in the historic numbers yet, so people aren't interested. But give it time, I think that'll be excellent. Now, third biggest position probably shouldn't be is Revolution Bars RBG. I'm eighteen percent up on this. I bought right at the low. Um, I don't know. I'm nervous about that because of the bank debt, but um, we'll see. Fourth position is so Sandar S O S. I'm down 12% on these. I bought them in, in a series of clips earlier this year. Not even remotely worried about that, and I don't care that it's down 12%. That is a five-year-plus hold. I think it's doing really, really well. Um, it's profitable now. I've got loads of cash. Um, I think the, the women behind Sasanda are utterly brilliant. So I'm very excited about that long term. Don't care what the current share price is. doesn't matter to me. Now, position number five, sadly, uh, is Wandisco. So uh, it's showing 15% up from when I bought, but it's going to be, you know, that will be 90% down in due course. Nothing I can do about it. It's suspended. should be coming back from suspension at the end of June. It's just another reminder to myself that I shouldn't have bought it in the first place. It's the total opposite of the type of shares I normally buy, but I believed the trading updates and the order bookings figures, which turned out to be uh, fraudulently misstated. So there you go. Uh, never mind. Next one is Beaks Financial. Now, I'm down 34% on that, so I'm a bit disappointed about that. But there just hasn't been, been any news flow from it. So, you know, people are waiting for these big uh, um, stock exchange deals that are in the pipeline. But they, they take years to, to germinate. So, you know, in a bear market, interest in that type of thing wanes. I think it's fundamentally very uh, good growth stock. But... Um, yeah, I'm taking some pain on that. I'm not going to do anything. I'll just, just run with it and see what happens. Next position is Eagle Eye. Now, I'm down 1% on this. I really like this. Uh, too expensive for me, really, but I think there's something unique there with Eagle Eye. Very, very good organic growth company. Uh, amazing client relationships with big-name retailers all over the world. It's got uh, tremendous specialism in uh, consumer loyalty and reward schemes and uh it really it really does look very special i think that but it's expensive eagle eyes next one reynold i'm very happy with i'm down one and a half percent from my purchase price on that doesn't matter what the price is really nice business pension scheme is an issue but it's all in hand it's also now expanding making acquisitions it's on the front foot it's far too cheap i think so i think that could be a takeover bid so i'm very happy to hold reynold port merion i'm still holding i'm up 14 percent on that uh it's come down a lot from the recent high um unfortunately they just slipped something into the trading update that put people off so i think that was a bit clumsily handled but anyway Forward PE of 7 and an inline update. I'm happy to, to run with that. It's very cheap. Next one, Gear for Music. I'm up 26% on that. Bought right at the low, so I'm happy with that. Debt's coming down fast with Gear for Music, and that's why it's investable again. Next one, Watkin Jones. Unfortunately, not very good, but very small position now. Down 32%. I, I'm happy to just hold that for a recovery. 
good strong balance sheet. Uh, they've just announced actually a deal has been struck. Uh, demand is coming back into it does build to rent and consu- and student accommodation and their big projects and they're forward sold to institutions who want you know uh, inflation uh, above inflation sort of income. Uh, so I think Watkin Jones has got a great track record as well. So I'm very happy. I bought it at the wrong point, but you know who cares? It's, it, I'll just keep it for a recovery. Next one, tiny little, little entree. I bought some VP Group this week, uh, so I'm down three percent. But that's you know just the bid off a spread. Then we're down to insignificant tiny holdings now. Uh, Image Scan, IGE. Uh, I don't know why I bought those, but I'm 12% down on it anyway. And then I've still got uh, a bit of Cambridge Cognition, COG, but that's much smaller than it was, and I'm down 20% on that. I'd like to build back up on that, but only when you know, the market's in more in more bullish mood, I think. Um, still admire the company and the CEO a great deal, but it's just not the right time for smaller speculative companies. But it has plenty of cash, so Cambridge Cognition uh, should be fine, and I think in a bull market that could do very nicely. So, OK, that's all my current holdings, actually. What else? Oh, no, I've got a little bit of Headlam in another account, HEAD, which I bought recently. So I think that covers everything. I'm just keeping it concentrated and focused, not using any gearing, and, you know, I'm happy... But long term, that'll be a, a good strategy. So yeah, Megan's, Megan's webinar, it just made me think how crap most UK companies are. And I think it's a reminder to us all that we need to be much more selective about what, what we're buying and holding. So uh, well done, Megan. I really enjoyed your webinar. And let's have more of them. They're great. Now, potential softening of the US market. I didn't note down where I got that from. But uh, uh, initial jobless claims rose. I don't know anything about the US or, or its data, but... Uh, I thought that was interesting that that some people are saying that there's early signs of a softening of the US jobs market. And a similar media report from another outlet uh, saying that the UK labour market may also be cooling. Now, this is important because that would then open the door for central banks to potentially lower interest rates, wouldn't it? Um, Now, this was from REC. I can't remember what that stands for now. And KPMG. So it was two uh, organisations that mentioned that the UK labour market is now cooling. Um, And I've heard that anecdotally from one or two companies as well, who are saying that actually, you know, the people who are commanding these monster monster salaries now are not quite so aggressive when they're asking for pay rises and uh, all the rest of it, digital marketing, IT, all that sort of thing. Although I'm also told that artificial intelligence could be a big boost for the whole IT sector. Interesting, isn't it? Now, Sky, a couple of interesting reports from them. Uh, two Canary Wharf office blocks have gone in... Owners have gone into receivership. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? We've talked about this this point before. You've had this huge commercial property boom fueled by zero interest rates over the last 15 years. Well, the, 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 the Canaries... <laughs> Canary Wharf. Is it the Canary in the mine? You know, we're definitely going to see debt defaults, aren't we, Um, with leverage buyout type businesses and with overly geared property companies where, you know, the if they've if their loan to value was too high and then you write down the value of the block by 30 or 40 percent, all of a sudden they're insolvent, aren't they? So I think commercial property, you've got to be so careful about. Uh, but there were also bargains in there for people who are specialists in that sector. One of my friends had a big chunky holding in uh, Civitas, I think it was, this uh, 
uh, REIT, that, a social housing REIT, that got uh, a premium bid at 30-40%. So he's done very well on that. He just did his research thoroughly, so well done to Paul. Another Paul who did very well on that, and he treated me to a lovely lunch the other day, so I was very grateful for that. Thank you. <laughs> I shouldn't have mentioned that, but I didn't say the surname, so it doesn't matter. Now, Sky have also reported that we, one of the reasons we've got extremely low uh, unemployment in Britain, only about 3.9%, which is half France and a third of Spain, uh, Sky, and one of my friends also told me this, is that we've got a very low labour market participation in the UK. We've got a real problem with this. A lot of skilled, experienced people took early retirement throughout the pandemic or, you know, are lolling about at home with what they call uh, long COVID. And, uh, you know, that could be why we've got labour shortages. Plus, of course, uh, you know, making it more difficult for people from Europe to come here will undoubtedly have uh, restricted the, the previous unlimited supply of cheap labour from Europe. But that was kind of the whole point of Brexit, wasn't it? To actually restrict uh, cheap labour so that businesses would have to pay up and people would have a higher quality of life, in theory. But the jury's out on that, obviously. Uh, sticky energy prices. I can't remember what that was. That was something from Sky as well. What else have we got? Oh, um, oh this was the... Um, a woman, I think, from the OECD who um, did a short video on Sky saying why inflation in the UK is higher than in some other European countries. To, uh, at the moment, anyway. I mean, it's on a downward trend in both, and core inflation is very similar in both, actually. But she said it's due to sticky energy prices, the length of time it's taking for the uh, reduction in wholesale energy to actually feed through to households has not helped UK inflation come down as quickly as it should. Anyway, it's not my opinion. This is just what this lady was saying from the OECD. And also, I think um, the UK labour inflation, she was saying, was uh, um, not helping. Uh, what else? Oh, yeah. Now, another report that the Eurozone is now in recession. It reported minus 0.1% GDP growth in Q1. And Germany, apparently, is the main problem. Germany's in recession. Again, not something you hear about on the news here, is it? Uh, because uh, they don't really compare us to, to, to the problems that... Uh, these problems are, are generic. They're happening everywhere internationally. So although I think the UK is plus 0.1... I mean, these are just rounding errors, aren't they? So personally, I'm, I wouldn't draw any great conclusions from GDP data when it's bunched really very close together. And I think a recession is meant to be two quarters of consecutive contraction. So I don't know what the Q4 figure is for... The EU. And does it really matter? I would say probably not, whether it's slightly above or slightly below. Anyway, CityWire put a, an interesting article about the uh, the windfall tax. Apparently, this 75% windfall tax on uh, North Sea has caused the, uh, hardly surprising really, the companies that operate there to just say, well, there's no point in us uh, planning any more production. And apparently this is, as CityWire is saying, this is leading to a bloodbath of jobs in the North Sea. And of course we'll just end up importing the, uh, the oil and the gas instead. So it's a ridiculous policy this is. Again, pandering to the green lobby, um, but causing a whole bunch of unintended consequences. So um, there's already signs that the, the Treasury are, are, are likely to relax the windfall tax. 
And, you know, we should be uh, developing North oil and gas because we need it. We're going to need it for years to come until the battery technology is good enough to be able to store renewable energy. And it's not one or the other, in my mind. I think we're doing a tremendous amount in this country on renewable energy, and that's great. But it's not going to be the solution for everything, is it? We need both. Uh, and then, you know, oil and gas just gradually phases out. I was listening to an interview with that uh, chap who funds Just Stop Oil, because, of course, Just Stop Oil is basically a business. You know, they're paying people to cause public disturbances. And the main donor of it had a riotously entertaining interview with uh, Piers Morgan that I happen to watch, who I only watch occasionally because I like and loathe Piers Morgan in equal measures. <laughs> he's just one of those characters, isn't he? Done some pretty awful things and said some awful things. But also, you know, he's a fearless interrogator of people, if they can get a word in edgeways, because normally when they finish their first sentence, he just starts talking over them. So, <laughs> I don't know, it's all interesting. But anyway, the guy who funds Just Stop Oil was... Uh, he made some interesting points, to be fair. He did. But I just think they're going about it all the wrong way. Just the same with trans activism. You know, you need to build alliances and bring people together to form a consensus that we need to do things. If you do it the opposite way and you just attack and malign and disrupt people's lives, it turns people against you. I spent six weeks in London and everyone in London absolutely hates Just Stop Oil. People can't stand. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, it is escalating now into violence. And I'm surprised it hasn't done uh, for this long. There was some scaffolders who uh, physically manhandled Just Oil out of the road. And they said, don't say, don't mess with scaffolders, <laughs> whatever you do. And, you know, these people want to get to the, where they've got to work. And, you know, a bunch of middle-class activists standing in the road uh, stopping bringing everything to their uh, to its standstill is not acceptable and also even though we all agree with their with their aims yes we need to use less oil and gas we know that um you know also they're impinging on our civil liberties because what happens next is that the government gives the police greater powers so the end result is all of us lose some of our civil liberties because of these activists so I'm very unhappy about this issue. But anyway, we mustn't be political. So now, mortgage pain. Um, this, I think, I'm really worried about. I mean, I, I looked again last night on Money Supermarket, and personally, we're quite, uh, I've only got a small mortgage, I can still get a five-year fix at 4.3%. I don't think that's uh, alarm territory at all. But that's with, you know, that's with a very high, um, very, very low uh, loan to value. But I've, a friend of mine, I might have mentioned this last week, has just had a letter... He's on a 1% fix, which, I, you know, I said to him, look, it's not going to last. Save some of the money. But, of course, he didn't spend it all, all the money that his additional income from having anything in the mortgage. The latest quote he got from Santander was 7.75%. Will you imagine going from 1% to 7.75%? He shopped around a bit, but the, the, the cheapest a broker can get him is 6%. That, I think, was for a two-year discounted deal. So I think this is really going to cause serious pain but concentrated pain for probably mainly younger to middle-aged couples with kids with a mortgage that comes off its fixed rate and could go to a much, much higher fixed rate if they can get a fixed rate at all. You know, if they've got maybe some adverse credit history or some other reason or if they've been made redundant, you're going to really see some horrible, horrible pain targeted at the sort of people that surely we should be protecting, not attacking by taking away a whole bunch of their... Uh, probably taking away all their disposable income. And then we're rewarding wealthy people who can now get 5% on their savings. I think it's a very, very incredibly clumsy tool, the way interest rates are being uh, moved around at a ridiculous 
extent and rapidity. I know I moan about this every week, but I think it's I think it's got to the point where I think we're the signs are we it looks like we're heading for a recession now. I've got to say, and from you know the outlook statements that companies are putting out now as well, I'm seeing definitely a more cautious tone for sure in the last week or two. Um, so yeah, it's not looking great, is it? More reader comments, please. It's gone too quiet. We've got some great contributions, but please, more reader comments. Um, at Mellow, several people said to me they feel intimidated at posting. Please don't. You know, everyone, we want, particularly from women, we want more women in the investing world, and uh, people with all backgrounds uh, and all aptitudes uh, should put uh, post your insights. I want to hear them. You know, I can do the numbers, and lots of other readers are numbers people, but what we lack is industry-specific knowledge and, you know, maybe just a common-sense attitude to investing. A lot of the best investors I know are, you know, really not that good at numbers, but they're just so good at spotting business strengths and weaknesses, turnarounds, quality of management. You know, there's lots of different skills in the investing world, and it's only, the numbers are only part of it. It's part, part art, part science. And very much a team sport, so I love it when we all throw our ideas into the box. So uh, please do come out from one of your eight-day bunkers and uh, start posting again. Uh, I think that's it for this week for the second podcast. I've taken up enough of your time in part one anyway. So thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, we'll keep going on. You know, bear markets come to an end eventually, and then we've laid the base for some fabulous uh, subsequent games. I don't think they're yet, but you know, it's not really as depending on what the economy, what the economy does. If we go into a deep recession then, you know, we probably need to hunker down for a while still, don't we? But if we're in companies that have got net cash, you know, uh, pricing power, all those sorts of things, high-quality companies that Megan flagged on, on her webinar, you know, I think that's a really good focus to be having right now. And then once the bull market starts, that's the time when you shift into maybe the, the, the riskier things, um, you know, maybe with which have got too much debt, and that's where you maybe might find some multi-baggers. That's what's happened in the past, anyway. All right, then. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a, 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 an important case to adapt to our approach, depending on, on market conditions, and sticking to quality, I think, is a really good message right now. Right, oh, I think I've got to cook mum, mum a late lunch. She's coming over, and uh, uh, it'll be nice to see her. I haven't seen her for a few weeks. So, um, right, that's it. Uh, bye for now. Bye.